welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. One day the Lord told Jonah, the son of Amittai, to go to the great city of Nineveh and say to the people, The Lord has seen your terrible sins. You are doomed. Jonah chapter 1 verses 1 and 2, Contemporary English Version Hello and welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. I'm Victoria Kay. All of us at Anchored by Truth are excited to be with you at the start of a new year and a new series. As we often talk, the Christian faith in America has been subjected to more challenges in the last couple of decades than it was in the first 225 years of the country's existence. One comment that we hear frequently in the popular media that is completely false is that the Bible is a book filled with myth and fairy tales. Nothing could be further from the truth, and that is a claim that is easily refuted. And one way it can be refuted is by knowing that the Bible contains a large body of reliable history. And one way to demonstrate that the history the Bible contains is reliable is by pointing to archaeological discoveries. So R.D. has entitled this series, Archaeology and the Bible. And we have R.D., who is an author and the founder of Crystal Sea Books, in the studio today. R.D., In our first episode in this series, you pointed out that archaeological finds can be a valuable source of support for the accuracy of the history that the Bible reports. Despite the fact that popular culture has tried to dismiss the connection, the truth is the relationship between the Bible and archaeology has been mutually supportive. Many scholars, including ones who aren't Christian, have used the Bible as a source document when planning or conducting their excavations. The Bible was and is widely regarded as an important source of information about ancient peoples and cultures. The trend to dismiss the Bible's accuracy in matters of dates and places in the Mideast has become popular among skeptics, but it is completely out of sync with how the Bible was viewed among professionals. In fact, the Bible's history has been shown to be accurate even when doubted, and you said that's something you wanted to illustrate today, right? Absolutely. But before we get into our discussion today, I'd also like to greet everyone, welcome them to Anchored by Truth. Anchored by Truth's sole purpose is to help equip believers to be able to answer a very straightforward question. And that's the question of how can we be sure that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God? Well, one way we can assure ourselves and bring that message to other people is to use confirmed archaeological discoveries that demonstrate that the Bible's historical reports are accurate, even when those reports have been doubted by many secular scholars. So today I want to revisit one of the most famous examples of the Bible getting history right even when skeptics for centuries dismissed the authenticity of the Bible's report. So, since our opening scripture was from the book of Jonah, I'm guessing that today you want to talk about the discovery of the city of Nineveh in the 19th century. 
Nineveh was the capital of the Syrian Empire and was one of the most prominent cities in the ancient world. You wouldn't think that a city as important as Nineveh could get lost in history, but it did. An article on the United Church of God's website says that, quote, Nineveh, the capital city, fell to the Babylonians in 612 B.C., about 50 years after its peak. The Assyrian Empire had collapsed and virtually vanished from history. By the time of Jesus Christ and the Apostles, no physical evidence of Nineveh could be seen. Lucian of Samosata, who lived from A.D. 120 to 180, a Greek writer, lamented, quote, Nineveh has perished. No trace of it remains. No one can say where once it existed, unquote. Such a lack of visible remains led some scholars of the 19th century to express skepticism that Nineveh or any part of the Assyrian Empire even existed, much less dominated a significant part of the world. Yes. Now, from around 900 B.C. to 600 B.C., the Assyrian Empire was the dominant military power in the Middle East. It was a very formidable military power, large armies, well-equipped, ferocious in battle. So the Assyrian Empire, for a couple hundred years, was really the most feared power that was in the vicinity of Israel and in the entire Middle East. Some scholars believe that during this time period, Assyria was, in fact, the most formidable military power in the entire world. But as you just quoted, in the waning years of the 7th century BC, Assyria began to weaken, and ultimately Assyria fell to the Babylonians under King Nabopolassar. Now, the fall of the Assyrian Empire isn't really all that remarkable, because if we learn anything from history, it's that empires, regardless of their power during their peak years, always weaken and they ultimately fall. The Assyrians fell to the Babylonians, the Babylonians fell to the Persians, the Persians fell to the Greeks, and the Greeks ultimately to the Romans. And even the mighty Roman Empire, which lasted longer than any of its predecessors, ultimately collapsed under the weight of social decay and external pressures. Empires rise and empires fall. But what is somewhat remarkable about the Assyrian Empire is that the Assyrians disappeared so completely that secular history completely lost sight of them. But, let's be clear, in addition to the Bible recording the existence and greatness of the Assyrian Empire, the Bible also had prophesied the destruction and disappearance of the Assyrian Empire. The Bible prophesied that God would use the Assyrians to punish his people because of their drift into idolatry. But at the same time, God also told the Assyrians they would be punished in turn because of their arrogance. For instance, Isaiah chapter 10 verses 15 through 19 record God saying to the Assyrians, quote, but can the axe boast greater power than the person who uses it? Is the saw greater than the person who saws? Can a rod strike unless a hand moves it? Can a wooden cane walk by itself? Therefore, the Lord, the Lord of heaven's armies, will send a plague among Assyrians' proud troops, and a flaming fire will consume its glory. The Lord, the light of Israel, will be a fire. The Holy One will be a flame. He will devour the thorns and briars with fire, burning up the enemy in a single night. The Lord will consume Assyria's glory like a fire consumes a forest in a fruitful land. It will waste away like sick people in a plague. Of all that glorious forest, only a few trees will survive, so few that a child could count them, unquote. That's from the New Living Translation. And Isaiah was not the only Old Testament prophet to warn Assyria of their coming destruction. 
So why don't you read that passage from the prophet Nahum, chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. Those verses say, quote, Where now is the great Nineveh, that den filled with young lions? It was a place where people, like lions and their cubs, walked freely and without fear. The lion tore up meat for his cubs and strangled prey for his mate. He filled his den with prey, his caverns with his plunder. I am your enemy, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Your chariots will soon go up in smoke. Your young men will be killed in battle. Never again will you plunder conquered nations. The voices of your proud messengers will be heard no more. Now listen to that last portion of what you read from Isaiah. God told the Assyrians that their, quote, glorious forest was going to be reduced to so few trees that even a child would be able to count them. And then in Nahum, God said to Assyria, quote, the voices of your proud messengers will be heard no more, end quote. Well, those are poetic ways of God telling the Assyrians that they were going to be utterly destroyed, and they were. But what we want to focus on today is that after those prophecies were completely fulfilled and Nineveh was destroyed by the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the city of Nineveh, they weren't just reduced to another vassal state of the Babylonian Empire. What happened with the Assyrians was that they were so devastated that they disappeared completely. You had this huge city that was located in what would be modern-day Iraq that literally disappeared into the sands. And as the Greek writer that you just quoted said, quote, Nineveh has perished. No trace of it remains. No one can say where it once existed, end quote. Now, that Greek historian Lucian lived in the 2nd century A.D. That's almost 1,900 years ago from today. Well, at least at that time in history, secular history remembered Nineveh. But by the 19th century AD, even that memory had disappeared. Or at least it had come to be greatly doubted by historians. The one source, though, that unequivocally preserved the mystery of Nineveh and the Assyrians was the Bible. Well, one reason some secular historians may have begun to doubt the existence of an actual Nineveh was because one Bible book in which Nineveh plays a prominent role is the book of Jonah. Jonah may be the most famous of the minor prophets because his book contains one of the best-known stories in the Bible. A man is saved from drowning by being swallowed by an extremely large sea creature and then tossed up on land. The same man later preaches to a pagan city and in three days converts the whole city, including the king. That story sounded mythical. So maybe historians reasoned that the whole book of Jonah was mythical, including the existence of Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire. And that's certainly possible, even though Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire are mentioned in several other books of the Bible. But one thing the skeptics could take comfort from in the 19th century, the early part of the 19th century anyway, was that until the mid-19th century, there was no physical evidence of Nineveh's existence. Physically, Nineveh had just vanished into the sands. And archaeology as we know it today was just beginning to emerge in the 19th century. And so as of the opening decades of the 19th century, Nineveh the city still remained undiscovered. But then all that changed. And the Encyclopedia Britannica has this to say about the discovery of Nineveh, quoting now from Encyclopedia Britannica. The first person to survey and map Nineveh was archaeologist Claudius J. Rich in 1820. 
a work later completed by Felix Jones and published by him in 1854. Excavations have been undertaken intermittently since that period by many persons. Sir Henry Layard, during 1845 to 1851, discovered the palace of Sennacherib and took back to England an unrivaled collection of stone base reliefs together with thousands of tablets inscribed in cuneiform from the great library of Ashurbanipal. So at least one of the names you just read should be familiar to any student of the Bible, right? Right. Sennacherib was one of the most famous kings of Assyria, and he is mentioned in several places in the Bible. Such as in the historical books of Kings and Chronicles. Sennacherib is well known to Bible readers because at one point he and his army invaded the kingdom of Judah with the intent to make it part of the Assyrian Empire. Let's remind listeners that during the time that David and his son Solomon were the kings of Israel, the nation was unified. But when Solomon's son took over, the kingdom split in two. After that, the northern kingdom was called Israel, and the southern kingdom was called Judah. The northern kingdom was ruled by a series of idolatrous kings and was eventually conquered by the Assyrians in 722 BC. The Assyrians deported the Israelites and resettled some other people into that territory. Judah remained an independent kingdom, although it paid annual tributes to the Assyrians. But around 701 BC, the Assyrians invaded Judah. Second Chronicles chapter 32 verse 1 says that the Assyrian king, quote, laid siege to the fortified cities, thinking to conquer them for himself, unquote. Right. The Assyrian king who laid siege to the cities in Judah was Sennacherib, and the Bible tells us that. But until the middle of the 19th century, secular historians weren't even sure that Sennacherib was a historical figure. But, as the entry from the Encyclopedia Britannica told us, once Sir Henry Layard discovered the great library of Ashurbanipal, all that changed because that library contained thousands of clay cuneiform tablets, including tablets that describe Sennacherib's invasion of Judah. And those tablets provided clear confirmation of the accuracy of the Bible's text. That same article from the United Church of God's website says this, quote, Assyrian records of those events quote the king of Assyria, boasting of his devastating invasion of Judah. 46 of Hezekiah's strong walled towns and innumerable smaller villages I besieged and conquered. As for Hezekiah, the awful splendor of my lordship overwhelmed him. The Assyrian records noted that the king had made Hezekiah a prisoner in Jerusalem, his royal residence, like a bird in a cage, unquote. Right. The article goes on to say, quote, the biblical record agrees with Sennacherib's account of the Assyrian invasion and notes the desperation of the kingdom of Judah as the Assyrians laid siege to Jerusalem, their last surviving stronghold. However, the Bible continues the story where the Assyrian records are silent. With Jerusalem facing imminent destruction, the people of Judah, led by King Hezekiah, prayed fervently to God, that prayer is recorded in Isaiah chapter 37, and were miraculously delivered against overwhelming odds, end quote. So, in both the books of 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, the Bible tells us that Hezekiah and the Judean people's prayers brought them deliverance. 2 Kings chapter 19, verses 30-37 through 37 say this, Therefore, this is what the Lord says concerning the king of Assyria. He will not enter the city or shoot an arrow here. He will not come before it with shield or build a siege ramp against it. 
By the way that he will come, he will return. He will not enter the city, declares the Lord. I will defend the city and save it, for my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. That night the angel of the Lord went out and put to death a hundred and eighty-five thousand in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all dead bodies. So the king of Assyria broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. One day, while he was worshipping in the temple of his god, his sons killed him with the sword, and they escaped to the land of Ararat. And Asaradan his son succeeded him as king. And the records that were brought back from the great library confirmed this account. Sennacherib carefully recorded a list of the cities he captured and destroyed. But one name of one city is conspicuously absent, the name of Jerusalem. Sennacherib talks about besieging Hezekiah in the city, but not about taking it or about capturing Hezekiah, who was Judah's king. So after almost 1,900 years of silence that prompted the secular world to doubt the authenticity of the Bible, the Bible's record was again proven to be true. The cuneiform tablets unearthed from Ashurbanipal's great library confirmed the Bible's record of Sennacherib's interactions with Judah exactly as the Bible described them. But when Henry Laird found the library, the tablets in the library confirmed many of the details contained in the Bible's historical records. Those included the names of kings from both countries, the fact that Assyria invaded Judah and conquered many Judean cities, and that Assyrians never conquered Jerusalem. The Assyrian records also confirmed that the invading king was murdered by two of his own sons and that a third son inherited the empire. Yes. So even though secular history lost sight of Nineveh for almost two millennia, the Bible never did. But now let's get back to the book of Jonah. We started out by noting that one of the books of the Bible in which Nineveh features so prominently is the book of Jonah, who is one of the minor prophets. Well, some of the elements in the book of Jonah are so unusual that it can almost make the book seem more like fiction than fact. But let's go on and show that even one of the historical details that's contained in the book of Jonah has been proven to be entirely accurate. In Jonah chapter 3, verse 3, Jonah gives us a detail about the city of Nineveh that seems somewhat unlikely. Jonah chapter 3 verse 3 says in part, quote, This time Jonah obeyed the Lord's command and went to Nineveh, a city so large that it took three days to see it all, unquote. That's from the New Living Translation. The New International Version says, quote, Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it, unquote. What you're saying is that that seems like a very large city if it takes three days for a person to walk across it. There aren't that many modern cities that you couldn't walk across in a day or two, so a city that takes three days to cross seems improbable. But as improbable as it may seem, archaeology has shown that even this detail from the book of Jonah is correct. Now, if we look in the book of Genesis, chapter 10, verses 11 and 12, they tell us this about the founding of Nineveh. Genesis says, quote, From that land Nimrod went to Assyria and built Nineveh and Rehoboth-ir and Kala, and Nimrod built Rezin, which is between Nineveh and Kala. All these combined to form the great city Nineveh. Close quote. And that version is from the Amplified Bible. Now, a Wikipedia article on the city of Nineveh notes that, quote, the ruins of Kuyunik, Nimrod, Carmelesh, and Korzabad form four corners 
The ruins of the great city Nineveh is included within the parallelogram formed by lines drawn from one to the other. The biblical reference in Jonah is generally regarded as consisting of these four sites. And that closes the quote from the Wikipedia article on Nineveh. So not only do we have the fact that the Wikipedia article talks about the city of Nineveh, as it's referred to in the Bible, being a very large area, beyond just that, excavations in that region have revealed that, as was very common in ancient times, not only were there cities that were occupied permanently by the people who lived there, but each of those areas also included defensive fortifications that lay well outside the walls of the city proper well outside the walls of the city of Nineveh at any rate. Now, these defensive fortifications, they were probably kind of like modern-day outposts. They would be used both to slow the advance of an oncoming army, as well as give an early warning to the main city that they were protecting. Well, after archaeologists have discovered these outlying areas that were part of the region in general, when they walked from the outposts on one side of the region to the outpost on the other side of the region, the archaeologists found that it did indeed take a few days to cross from one ring of the outer fortifications to those on the other side. So there's a couple of different ways in which the Bible's description of Nineveh as being a city that took three days to walk across. There were probably a couple of different ways in which that particular detail is confirmed, but the point is that it is confirmed. Also, even in our day, it's common to refer to a large area by the name of a city that dominates it. If you look at a map, we know that New York City includes Manhattan, the Bronx, Queens, Staten Island, and so forth. But no one would bat an eye if someone from Florida just told friends they were traveling to New York, even though they might wind up in the Bronx. So, when the Hebrew writer said that Nineveh was a very great city, that it took three days to cross, the writer was using the same kind of descriptive language we use today. Agreed. And in fact, that kind of informal descriptive language adds to the authenticity of the book of Jonah. You know, if someone had been trying to contrive a pious fraud about a man being miraculously delivered by a big fish from drowning just before converting the capital city of his enemies, it's unlikely that they would have been informal or cavalier about describing the people who were to be converted. But someone who's recording a true, although remarkable, tale of conversion, whether the writer was the prophet Jonah himself or someone else, they are just going to write using the conversational conventions of the day, including shorthand or idiomatic ways of describing the capital city of their enemies. What you've been talking about in this episode of Anchored by Truth is summed up well in the article by the United Church of God. The article says, quote, that the only historical source in those days that verified the existence of the empire was the Bible. The Old Testament histories and prophecies spoke about Assyria. Jesus proclaimed the existence of Nineveh as a historical fact in Matthew chapter 12, verse 41. Yet some scholars disputed the testimony of Jesus and the prophets. That is, until one spectacular decade in the middle of the 19th century when Austin Henry Layard and Paul Emil Botta rediscovered in northern Iraq the ancient remains of three Assyrian cities, including Nineveh, and evidence of the military that had crushed all resistance from the Tigris to the Nile. The Assyrian Empire, in all its awesome power, had been resurrected through archaeology, unquote. So the book of Jonah and the other books that mention Assyria and Nineveh provide a very clear and easily understandable example of archaeology 
producing evidence that demonstrates the truth of the Bible's history, even when that evidence disappeared for a long time. Secular historians, when they thought about Nineveh, had concluded that the absence of evidence was evidence of absence. But it wasn't, because the Bible's record of that history was also evidence, only they discounted that evidence. The point you're making is that it's important to not discount the reliability of the Bible just because secular, cultural, or so-called experts would like to do so. Exactly. The Bible is the Word of God, and as such, it is trustworthy. But God has not asked us to suspend our use of ordinary human tools, such as archaeology or science or logic, in our pursuit of understanding the Bible. It's not unreasonable for an honest skeptic to ask the question, what evidence is there that the Bible is the Word of God? But what is unreasonable is for us, those of us who know the Bible is the Word of God, to provide example after example of scientific fact or archaeological discoveries that support the Bible only for a skeptic to continue to contend that the evidence doesn't exist. You know, there comes a point where a request for evidence dissolves into a simple unwillingness to accept what the evidence is telling you. So, when we encounter a book like Jonah, it's not unreasonable to approach certain parts of it, a man being swallowed and kept alive by a giant fish or whale, with an initial skepticism. Men being swallowed by giant fish isn't an everyday occurrence for us, but the fact that it is unusual does not mean it's impossible. And when we look beyond elements within the book of Jonah that we can test directly, we find out that a fair test tells us that the writer of Jonah was writing history, not myth. Right. In our first episode in this series, we pointed out that another amazing story contained in the Bible, the story of David and Goliath, might on first blush look legendary. In fact, that story is historically accurate, and the details in that story illustrate its accuracy. Now, the book of Jonah reinforces the points we made in our first episode in this series. Archaeology can play two very important roles in our study of the Bible, and that's why we're doing this series. Archaeology can help skeptics see that the Bible is not, in fact, a book of myth and fairy tale. It is a book firmly set in place and time, and its reports of those places and times are trustworthy. Archaeology can also help us expand our understanding of those places and times that the Bible describes, and of the people and the societies and the cultures that the Bible describes. And this all helps us understand the Bible's messages more clearly. Well... This sounds like a great time to pray. Today, let's listen to a prayer for our friends and neighbors who have not yet come to know Christ as their Savior. Just as God converted the people of Nineveh through Jonah's preaching, we can pray that God will convert the lost of our day through our own preaching. A prayer for the spiritually lost. Wondrous and perfect Father, We exalt your name and sing praises to your glory. Your word is the foundation of joy and the bedrock of hope. In you, there is blessed assurance. Without you, the shifting sands of a sin-stained shore would wash away beneath us and we would be swept into the depths by the tides of trouble. With you, we cannot be moved or thrown down, though all the waves of chaos should pound against us with fervor and anger. Lord, too many have been swept away, and we are grieved to see all about us people we know whose life foundations are crumbling. 
we see our neighbors being pushed to and fro by the currents of popular opinion and whose lives are filled with fear and despair because they have no sustaining source of truth. We come before you today to plead for their rescue and redemption. We ask that you sovereignly intercede in the lives of those who are lost and sinking and turn their hearts to you. As when the citizens of Nineveh heard Jonah's preaching and repented, please touch our land and community with your word and call our neighbors to you. Give us opportunities to witness that we would miss on our own. Strengthen our hearts to stand for Christ as he stood for us. The glory is his alone, so it is in his name we pray, give thanks, and ask for the lost to be saved. Amen. Is the Bible important in your life? Supporting Anchored by Truth with a contribution is an easy way to put your faith into action. The opportunity to help is available at crystalseabooks.com. How wonderful would it be for Jesus to commend us because we made His Word a priority in our lives and giving. We are grateful for your support and partnership. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage friends to tune in also or to listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com where We're not perfect, but our boss is. And for those of you who need that website one more time, that's crystalseabooks.com. Crystal, C-R-Y-S-T-A-L-C-S-E-A, and books, B-O-O-K-S dot com. Thank you for your support.